thought winter was so, so awful. The, uh, the constant numbing cold, the no sun. It's unbearable. You know, I, I prayed. In February, I actually prayed for spring to come to relieve me of this, this oppressive, relentless, dismal, dark winter. Thank you. What was I thinking? I must have been out of my mind. I mean, how can I forget the mosquitoes? It's like the, the state bird of Alaska. You can't go outside without being assaulted, sucked dry. You can't come inside because they, they come down the chimneys. It's literally squeeze through the cracks in the walls. Joel is plagued by mosquitoes, which he mentions he had forgotten about. He says, how could I forget the mosquitoes? Now, this is the first time that we've seen mosquitoes in Sicily, Alaska, but I guess they're everywhere. Yeah, who could forget? Whenever spring comes, there comes the mosquitoes as well. Um, I'm definitely not looking forward to it right now because there's been heavy rainfall in uh, the area that I'm in. So after a large amount of rainfall, lots of mosquitoes come out. Like as soon as you come out, they just start swarming you. Yeah, I've been outside recently, you know, post-vaccine, going outside a lot more. And I've noticed a lot more mosquitoes. I used to be, I used to think I was more like, mosquito resistant or repellent because I never got, I was never too bothered by mosquitoes. Of course, they would always buzz around, but I I would make out without too many mosquito bites, you know, but uh, recently while I've been out, I think I've lost that that quality, that resistance. They're, they start to bite me more. Oh, dang. I'm always afraid of catching uh, West Nile disease. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my mom all used to always tell me, you know, you're going to catch West Nile, like come out, come inside when it gets dark, like don't stay out. Of course, I've never caught it. Like, what happens? With, what? What is the? Yeah, I used to be so afraid, but I don't even know. It seems now to me like it's uh, it, it's so impossible. But I guess it's probably not. It's probably more likely than not. Uh, it's kind of like a low chance. Okay. The last time I looked into it, but like, there's always like a possibility of it. So that's why I always freak out every single time. Like one bites me, it's like, all right, well, is this? I was going to die. What does West Nile <laughs> kill you? Like, what's? Do you know anything about? What it is? I mean, you're probably not going to die like straight out, but the uh, the months of recovery are not fun. Oh. So, Ooh. yeah. Uh, also, like, only about like one out of five people are going to show symptoms of the West Nile virus whenever they get it. The other four out of five have fewer or no symptoms. Okay. And, it, and if you have no symptoms, then you're probably fine. Yeah, but there's no vaccine to the West Nile virus. Like once you get oh. it, you're, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got it. You have yeah. months of recovery, possibly death. Um, okay, let's, yeah, you know, put, spray yourself with some mosquito spray. I think later in the episode, Joel finds some mosquito spray. Because there's, you know, there's so many mosquitoes in this episode, but I don't see anyone like spraying mosquito spray until like maybe once at the end when Joel is spraying himself. Uh, what Charles, what are we talking about? Okay, so this is not a mosquito-related podcast. This <laughs> is the Northern Overexposure Podcast, where we're talking about the CBS television series, Northern Exposure. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee. Hi, my name is Lee, and I've seen this series a couple times. Charles, this is your first time watching every episode. So, you know, we're in the fourth season. We're almost done with the fourth season. And at this point, you've got a pretty strong grasp, but still each episode is sort of a surprise. It's very fresh to you. We've tried our best to uh, stay away from spoilers. I think you're going in clean on, on each episode. And uh, also part of the uh, mission statement of this podcast is to expand the reach of the show Northern Exposure. So this show now, you know, 30 years old, 
we like to introduce it to friends, uh, just anyone who has usually never seen the show or, you know, sometimes have never even heard of this show. Uh, but we want to get an outsider's opinion. Does this episode stand up on its own? What are some things that maybe don't uh, hold so well in 2021? Uh, just, yeah, just a general idea of uh, of the outsider. And also, hopefully, gaining a, a new fan along the way. But we'll see. I, th- I feel like most of our guests uh, do express interest in Northern Exposure and are excited to continue watching However, this show is not easy to track down. It's never been made available for streaming. You have to have the DVDs or um, or like Blu-rays, which are in a completely different region, like UK or Australia. Um, anyway, this episode that we're talking about today is season four. It's season four, episode 23. The title is Mud and Blood. It was directed by Jim Charleston. This is the first episode that he directed for Northern Exposure, but he's going to return next season, and I think even in the sixth season, he's got some credits. The writers were Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider, again, the sort of uh, producing partners, writing partners that have written so many great episodes of the show. And uh, the air date, original air date, was May 10th, 1993. Yeah, the dream team back at it again right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can kind of feel their fingerprints throughout this entire episode. I, I think I'm starting to get a pretty good bearing on okay. like the writers. Uh, at least for this particular uh, duo of writers. Yeah. They have some idiosyncrasies that I'm able to identify and be like, okay, we're getting to like some prime northern exposure real estate right here. Yeah, that's a uh, good thing to pay attention to because I actually haven't been like trying to classify that in my head too much. Of course, when I see it, I know I'm in for a great episode when I see Diane Frolov, Andrew Schneider, uh, but I haven't been thinking about it that, you know, I haven't been categorizing it that much in my head. But if you start noticing more similarities, let me know. Like, uh, okay, the only thing that sticks out in my head is like, I know that there's one writer or one team of writers that always like is very their their episodes are sort of like psychology focused. Like there's you know lots of Freud or lots of Jung. Is that Diane Frolov, Andrew Schneider to you, or maybe a little bit? Okay. The thing that I associate with these two writers is that there's usually a lot of subtext and a dream sequence. And oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's very. It has like I want to say that they're the ones responsible for a lot of those similar endings where like okay. it's like a party or like a good time. Oh. And the camera's like panning out and then like, you know, you could see the festivities going around. Th- this has happened at least like seven or eight times at this point. <laughs> like, like very similar endings right here. And I want to say they're responsible for a majority of them. Yeah, I mean, just kind of going through some of the credits, uh, slow dance, not necessarily a party, but it ends with uh, a lot of people dancing in the brick. Soulmates, that's like the Christmas party, like Christmas episode. I guess you could say it's a party. It's a celebration. Our wedding, that was like uh, Adam and Eve's wedding. So again, like a group, a celebration. And then most recently, uh, Northern Lights, which I guess you you could you might not say party, but it's a big group celebration. I think that counts as like what you're what you're talking about, Charles. It, it fits in with that. You know, it's like a, a a large party environment. Everyone at the end of that episode gather together at night uh, in front of Chris's sort of light sculpture um, 
exhibition? Yeah, it, it's always ending with like the marvel of human life. <laughs> yeah. Really, it's like what, the, what they really like hammering home on. Yeah, definitely. In Sicily, they wrote that episode. That's the season three finale. That's a big. That definitely fits that uh, description. Well, jumping into this episode. So this is uh, the first episode in a while that doesn't have like an opening gambit scene. Like it actually just goes, whenever you play the episode, it starts with the title theme, the music, and like the moose walking around, you know, Morty the Moose. But when we do hop into the episode after the theme music ends, uh, we get sort of this monologue from Chris at K-Bear, Spring Has Sprung sort of vibe. Uh, I, I wasn't tracking too much of, like I didn't take much notes on what Chris was saying, but more about what we were seeing. I took a lot of notes like the snow that we normally see in Sicily is now mud. And uh, we hear about this annual mosquito festival. So already we see mud and blood, like mosquitoes suck blood. That's that's the title of the episode. But um, just the visuals, uh, it, it already feels like a whole new season. You know, it's spring, a whole new season for Sicily. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we're just presented with two key pieces of information from Chris. There's going to be a new pig in town. It's going to help oh, out finding yeah. some new truffles. And there's a mosquito festival that the townsfolk are all going to come together for. So, yeah, those are the two big ones that we can get from Chris's monologue right there. Yeah, I also took the note that Joel, on his way into the office, gets uh, splashed by some kids riding on uh, riding by on their bikes. Like, the mud splashes up. And... Uh, Well, just something I wanted to point out is, I don't think it happens here, but probably in the very following scene, uh, Joel is, uh, well, it's from the the soundbite that we played where he's like, oh, how could I forget the mosquitoes? Then he finds out that there is uh, a mosquito festival, which is something he apparently never knew. Now, we know that Joel has been in town for some time. There's a lot of episodes recently where like some new thing happens in town that's like an annual this or an annual that or someone like visits town like and they're supposed to visit town like every year and it seems like Joel is encountering this for the first time. So it's a little weird, but I, I justify it in my head uh, thinking like maybe Joel was out on some sort of doctor call and he was out of town last year whenever they had the Mosquito Festival. Like, uh, if you think of the last episode that we watched, Cottage for Uncle Manny, Joel talks about having to go fly up to, like, Yellowknife to treat the flu. So, you know, there are probably periods of time when Joel is in Alaska, but he's not in Sicily. So he might miss out on celebrations like this. That's how I that's how I justify it. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that, like, they have to do this because a large majority of the show is based on the town itself. So yeah. you just gotta cook up new reasons to be like, oh, this is like, we just didn't cover it yeah. in there. And I, I'll, I'll give them a pass for that. Like, you're not tracking 365 days in a year. Like, there's always gonna be, like, some weeks, maybe even months, that Northern Exposure just isn't covering for each season. So then, like, they can revisit that week or month. And we, you know, we can see some new stuff. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the uh, the pig that's going to be searching for truffles. Uh, and actually, now I can't remember if we actually get to see the pig before we see Joel go into his office or if it's uh, if it just goes like what happens after the Chris K-Bear opening monologue. Uh, we just get shown uh, Joel entering into his office. Right. Okay. So we just hear about this uh, this prized truffle hunting pig. Don't see it just yet. Joel enters... Uh, the doctor's office, it's the soundbite that we played 
earlier. And his, uh, his dialogue continues a little further. He's, of course, talking to Marilyn, who is being silent. That's why you don't uh, hear her in the soundbite. But she, like, hands him some coffee. And he goes on and on about the mosquito buzzing. Like, he starts hearing the buzzing. And he says, there's no sound more horrifying to the human ear. We see Marilyn's wearing a garlic necklace. Yeah, she's wearing a garlic necklace. She has a bunch of attire decorated with uh, garlic. Presumably, it's because they imagine that it's going to ward off the mosquitoes. Uh, The logic being that vampires suck blood, mosquitoes (laughs) suck blood, put two and two together. Kind of works. Yeah. uh, uh, Joel rightfully is skeptical. He says, "I, I suppose you can't support that with some hard empirical data. Uh, you know, the fact that garlic will keep uh, mosquitoes away. And, and Marilyn says, Dracula doesn't like it. He he sucks blood and he doesn't like garlic. <laughs> now, I, I was thinking, aren't there, uh, There's there's got to be some natural DIY uh, repellents. And I think, you know, like citronella, that is a repellent for mosquitoes. I'm just looking this up online. Apparently, uh, eucalyptus oil, I've also heard that. I, I was also under the impression that garlic would keep mosquitoes away, though that's probably just an old wives' tale. I'm, I'm not finding uh, anything online when I search it. Well, I think it's really funny that she wears garlic in this episode because uh, garlic, from my understanding, has two symbolic meanings. One is protection. Like, it's always used yeah. to ward mm-hmm. off against vampires, <laughs> in this case, mosquitoes. And I think it represents fertility as well. That was one that I was not familiar oh, with wow. until I had to Google it. But it kind of makes sense that it would represent that aspect. Yeah, there is a plot line uh, with Shelley and Holling that we'll get to. And I guess since we're just starting off here, we can choose. Do you want to start branching off into a different plot line? Do you want to stick on Joel? Huh. This is always like the part where you like you choose your own adventure. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever read one of those books whenever you were a kid? I actually loved those. Yeah, I love the. Uh, I had some Goosebumps ones, but of course, there's other versions of choose your own adventure. I'd always kept one finger. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like on the the original page to be like, all right, now if I choose like page twenty nine, am I gonna like how far can I if go? If I die, yeah. I end up dead. Yeah, <laughs> gotta I'll revert. But it's my. It's like my save point. <laughs> yeah. Save state. Uh, you know, I don't think Joel's a bad one to go on. I, I think that let me make sure. Yeah. I don't think Joel's a bad one to start on. Let's uh let's go with him. Yeah. So he's here with Marilyn. He learns about this mosquito festival, the garlic repellent, apparently. And the next time we will see him, I guess we're gonna kinda jump forward. Well, why don't okay. we combine well, I was gonna say, why don't we combine them with him and Maggie together? Right. Because I think their plot lines keep going in and out together. So we could just skip to the next time we see Maggie, which one's that? Let's see. Is that uh, her and Ruth Ann's store? Right. So that's when she um, receives some mail from Ruth Ann. Is that what it is? Like, uh, what? Sorry. What's just, what's like tripping me up is that <laughs> I don't know why. I've probably thought of this before, but you know, like Maggie delivers the mail to Sicily because she's got the plane. Mm-hmm. How? And in this scene, Ruth Ann gives uh, Maggie, uh, right, that she gives her a letter and a videotape from Mike, right? Yeah. So did Maggie, so how did Ruth Ann get that mail? If Maggie didn't give the mail to Ruth Ann, 
to then I in my mind the way it works out <laughs> is that she has like she just dumps like a bucket she just has like a yeah bucket. okay and yeah then she doesn't Ruth like Ann go through it we'll sort yeah. it okay that makes sense the Ruth Ann is sort of like a post office sorry my brain broke for a second I was like like reality just like I felt like I was in the matrix and like everything <laughs> was just like nothing made sense anymore <laughs> I'm starting to ramble so let me hand this scene to you when when Maggie goes into Ruth Ann's store. Yeah, no problem. So let's start off how the scene works is that Ruth Ann is trying to make a hard sell on this um, 20,000 volt lantern that's going to attract some mosquitoes over and then zap them to death. Uh, She's trying to sell it to a customer. And she says that she can just sit there in her chair and just rock back and forth and listen to it pop and crackle (laughs) for hours. And eventually she does make that sell, which then goes to Maggie, who goes in. And the important thing to note is that she doesn't need to buy the calamine lotion from Ruth Ann that she ordinarily does in 16-ounce industrial size. (laughs) Calamine lotion is used for uh, itching. So uh, for a while, I didn't understand that. I thought that was like some sort of like like face lotion or something, like some sort of uh, uh, feminine hygiene. I don't... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I don't know that I've ever actually used calamine lotion. Maybe it harkens back to me saying like I'm naturally mosquito repellent, but... uh, (laughs) I've definitely been bitten by mosquitoes, but that I don't think I ever use that as a re, as like a um, not remedy. Is that the word? Like as a yeah. as a yeah. And the second important thing is that she gets a package from Mike. Yeah, the letter and a videotape from Mike, and uh, we learn that Mike is off the coast of Peru, and Maggie immediately has some dread, has some worry because she thinks that Mike is dying or is about to die, will die. Because uh, some of that uh, show Bible, all of Maggie's boyfriends have uh, died sort of in freak accidents or early deaths. So, you know, of course, Mike, even though he's left the show, uh, the character still lives on, at least in a voiceover in this episode. And, you know, obviously through this letter and through this videotape, Maggie's worried that Mike is going to die. But according to the letter... Turns out Mike's fine. He's never felt better in his life. She looks up to uh, Ruth Ann and she says, his sinuses aren't even blocked. You know, she's like reading the letter in front of Ruth Ann. She says, Maggie says, it's weird, but wonderful. The the thing I tracked the most from this scene is the very last shot, like Maggie's still holding the letter, reading it, kind of surprised, confused, walking away from Ruth Ann and Ruth Ann's look uh, towards Maggie as she walks away. I uh, wasn't, wasn't sure exactly how to read that. It's still early in the episode. Yeah, I didn't catch that detail right there where Ruthann looks at Maggie. Uh, presumably, it's just because she's um, concerned about her concerns, right? Yeah, and I guess if we were to follow Maggie's storyline, uh, we'll get to it. But like, obviously, this is the reverse of what Maggie expected. And uh, the fact that she's not getting bit by mosquitoes when normally she gets eaten alive, you can see things are starting to flip for Maggie. Maybe Ruthann is like putting that together. She's like, huh, this is opposite of what is normal. I guess that's what that look is is trying to express. Mm, Okay. Well, right after she leaves that store, we see a shot of this precariously hanged sign for Wyman's taxidermy, Sicily's only and finest. We trade gloves for hides. Yeah, I thought that was hilarious because uh, normally the 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 phrase would be Sicily's finest, but it's uh, Sicily's only and finest. <laughs> so you can't be the most fine if you're just the only one, which is really right. Funny. 
Well, that sign is not long for the world because it falls down <laughs> and almost hits Dave the cook who's wandering outside. But thankfully, Maggie manages to pull him uh, away from it, which is where Dave says, like, hey, you saved my life. Like, I can't believe that. Yeah, it's uh, pretty spectacular. Like, Dave was, like, trying to get a, a newspaper and, like, I guess uh, the newspaper dispenser dispensary is, like, right below this uh, precariously hanged sign and uh on, upon maggie's exit she sees dave and she's like oh hey come 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 get this out of the back of my truck soon as dave moves the sign falls and uh she yeah dave says you saved my life she saved his life and of course she's like no 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 that's that's not me that was like you know that was that was whatever but uh dave has to point out you know like if that i mean if that sign hit me it probably would have cracked my skull right and she was like uh, Maggie's like, yeah, yeah, that's true, actually. Like, he probably would be dead right now. So, yeah, uh, whether she can uh, notice it or not, she has to admit that she did save his life. Right. So that's going to be her first little change in this episode. We're going to see the second one in the next scene immediately following it, which is where she pops in the tape that she got from Mike, and everyone in the brick is there watching it along with her. You know, they know Mike. So we get treated to some like really granular, terrible quality of... Um, it's like videotape, like a, uh, very snowy videotape. Is that snow? I just assumed that was just like poor quality. Uh, uh, sorry, snowy meaning like a uh, snowy reception. So it's not actual oh. snow, but you're right. Yeah, so it's just, uh, uh, what did you say? Like uh, granular, like it's very, very choppy. It doesn't look, doesn't look great quality. Right. And they're watching it. What's happening is that Mike is, uh, I didn't really get the gist of it, but apparently like <laughs> there's like a, uh, the, the quote unquote bad guys are like dumping chemicals <laughs> into the ocean and trying to catch them in the act. It's essentially what I got from it. Yeah. Ed summarizes it. I have his quote. Uh, he says, Mike is following a ship. He suspects of illegally dumping byproduct off Lobos de Tierra. And then, uh, you know, someone mentions how I think Joel's like, can't even see anything. And Ed says, not enough ambient light. It's very low light situation <laughs> there. Yeah, that's what I guess that's what it is. I think this is so. All right. Let's just say how this how this resolves. Like we're watching this video and Mike, like they 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 see it happening. And I guess they shine the lights on this. Uh, the bad guys, you know, the, the ship of the bad guys. And Mike says, we've just hit him with 8,000 foot candles of incandescent light. Look at him. They're scurrying like rats. It's like, we did it. We got him. But to me, it's just like, I think the real solution would be, would be to like apprehend these, to catch these people red handed and, and to stop them. But uh, at this point, I feel like they're just going to go somewhere else and, and dump the byproducts, right? Yeah. It's not like, they, well, they didn't reveal it. So maybe they do have it. But okay. uh <laughs> These are not like law enforcement of any kind, right? Like, You're talking about uh, Mike himself. He's not. He's not yeah. the law enforcement. Yeah, yeah. Mike and his gang. All they did was like shine a light on the problem. But like, <laughs> it's not like they had like some uh, external third party force that could like physically apprehend them. Yeah, I I wasn't too sure why they were fleeing. Presumably, they have guns. They're doing illegal <laughs> activity. Like, why don't they just Start uh, fight back? <laughs> and that's how Mike uh, horribly meets his horrible <laughs> end. 
But then they don't know either. Like the, the the people they're shining a light on, they don't know what's going on either. So maybe that's why they. Okay, fled. they could think it's the cops or something or uh, some law enforcement yeah. agency. But the most important thing is that Mike at the end of the tape thanks O'Connell. He says, "Like you cured me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like I would not be able to do any of this uh, if it wasn't for you." Yeah, it's really funny because it's it's so um, like it's really pressing on that button that is irritating Maggie here uh, because. Well, it's it's also funny that it's almost as if Mike is like somehow having a conversation with Maggie through the tape. Uh, I mentioned this earlier. It's just like his voiceover. So we don't actually see Mike, but he's like talking to her and he's like, and it's all thanks to you, Maggie. Thank you. Like he, exactly what you said, Charles. Like you, you, you cured me. It wasn't the medicine. Like I had all these problems uh, with the uh, multiple chemical syndrome, I think, MCS. The medicine didn't help. It was you. You're the one that cured me. And uh, this greatly upsets Maggie. She leaves uh, the brick. Yeah. Well, like, they're really hammering home on this theme of rebirth and living because Maggie saves Dave, gives him a new lease on life. And then Mike says, I feel so purposeful, so alive, and I owe it all to you. Again, another case of Maggie uh, endowing life into another being. We all know that spring symbolizes rebirth. So they're just, they're going to hammer it like all throughout this entire episode, but already we can see it right here. Yeah. It's a great, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a obvious metaphor to go after. And so we can see them, uh, having fun, like twisting that through Maggie's, uh, shift and her, you know, she has her own sort of shift here going from, uh, well, we'll, we'll get to it, but she, she's, she's yeah. got this new power. Well, she's uncomfortable with it. Cause that's what the ensuing conversation is about. She says that, well, she doesn't say it, but Joel says that she revels in this abject negativity. <laughs> yeah. So Joel's view of her, presumably what Maggie also feels is that she's usually a very cynical, pessimistic being that always looks toward the lower half of the glass. Yeah. And this is between Joel and Maggie. They sort of talk about this. Joel says, you know, I have to hand it to you. I don't think I've ever met another person who is so thoroughly uncompromising in her pessimism. Maggie claims it's realism. uh, But I really underlined that line as well that you said, Charles. Uh, Joel says, you revel in this abject negativity. On some level, you actually enjoy this, he says, it it seems. And uh, yeah, it's just like, you know, you you get some fodder for... Joel, Maggie argument, which we love to see when, when they're sort of yelling at each other. Uh, I think the, for me, I put the bullet at uh, the end, the end of the scene when Maggie is basically like, well, you know, Joel, we slept together, which means, you know, all of Maggie's boyfriends have died horrific deaths. So she's saying like, she says, you're number one on the hit parade with a bullet, lightning and icy road, slip in the shower, Malaria, you know, obviously there's mosquitoes around now. Joel's going to get West Nile and be like one of the what, 10% <laughs> of people who will actually die. The next thing involving Joel and Maggie together is them in the brick again. It's the next day and we open with a shot of Joel scratching himself and Dave offering him some, uh, some garlic saying that he wants to spread it out on toast. So Dave's bought into the superstition of garlic repelling mosquitoes. And Maggie joins them at the bar. And this is where, like, another individual comes to Maggie uh, for their problems. This one is a financial advice one, (laughs) which she answers with as much, like, 
like not confidence, but like as much expertise as like a random internet goer would have. <laughs> like if you just shouted that into the internet, I think that's like what someone else would say on the internet. <laughs> well, to give her some credit, she's her first response um, to this question, this financial question. Well, let's set it up. So uh, it's Walt who actually walks up to Maggie and tells her that his son is looking at a piece of real estate. And it's like, uh, by the lake, it's this, it's that, it's $45,000. And he says, what do you think, Maggie? And to give Maggie some credit, she says, well, how, how the hell should I know? And uh, we draw this comparison. I think Walt says, you know, you cured Mike, you saved Dave's life. Uh, not to mention the mosquitoes aren't biting you this year. Uh, I think you got some good luck or something going on. So what do you think I should do? And then, of course, like you said, Charles... Maggie, just, you know, without really any um, expertise, she gives him uh, the the advice. She gives him the affirmative on that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny yeah. that it's gone from like life-saving to more financial matters. And later we'll see it's like, I think uh, like she fixes like a broken electric razor. You know, that's it's not even, it's an inorganic material that she like fixes a machine later. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about that scene? That's the very next one. I do. I wanted to quickly uh, talk about the order at the brick just because I, I like the idea of uh, the food at the brick. You mentioned that they're spreading garlic on the toast. Mm -hmm. Dave gives Joel like a whole roasted garlic and you can scoop out the cloves and spread it on toast. And then Dave says, care for some ginseng tea? And Joel says, is that a mosquito repellent? And Dave says, no, but it sure tastes good. And so Joel's like, okay, sure. Yeah. Ginseng tea. <laughs> that's, that's that. So, uh, the next scene would be the one with the electric razor. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So Maggie's in her house alone and she's looking at this particular plant. Uh, this oh. plant is called a bromeliad. It's specifically a scarlet star. Now, Plants usually don't have a lot of meaning. Like they do, but not all of them. Not nearly as much as flowers. Welcome to the flower shop. No. Those are the ones that pack a lot of symbolic meaning. But from what I was able to Google from Bermeliads, they usually can mean protection. So going hand in hand with garlic right here this episode. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're like medium skill to take care of. They're not like <laughs> really hard, nor are they really easy. And the reason I bring this up is because Maggie is fascinated that this plant is still alive. She says <laughs> that she doesn't have a green thumb on her body. She doesn't really know how to take care of plants. Yet this one's still alive. She is amazed. And she relates all of this to Ed, who had came in. Ed is here to show Maggie Ruth Ann's broken razor. It's a woman's razor right here. And he wants her to see that she can fix it since she's a miracle fixer. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Maggie says, okay, yeah, sure, I'll give it a shot. And uh, just bangs it on the table and it starts working. So that's like, that's not, obviously not expertise, but maybe it really has something to do with luck at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's very important though, right now, the item that she fixes is a woman's hygiene razor. Okay. Why do you think that is important? I want to talk about it in the very next scene. Okay. Okay, but okay. I think it's very important that that comes into... I think it's very important that I bring this up. Okay, okay. We'll, re we'll, we'll be right back to that. Uh, just to wrap out of this scene, I actually love Ed's reaction whenever it actually works. Like Maggie bangs it on the table. Ed has like a, like a wow reaction. And then he cites the movie Resurrection. Um, actually, I looked it up earlier because I haven't seen it. And I should have jotted down the year because there's quite a few movies called Resurrection. Uh, but he does say that this one stars... Ellen Bernstein, 
1980 is the year that movie came out. And he quickly rattles off the plot. Uh, you know, like Ellen Burstyn drives her car off a cliff, has a near-death experience, comes out of a coma and realizes that she can suddenly heal people. I think the, the plot goes on like she has an affair with Sam Shepard or something. But all the while, while Ed is explaining this to Maggie, we get like this very slow push in on Maggie as she's starting to realize like what's going on and uh, what's going on with her maybe. And she says, no, I haven't had any near-death experiences, not even so much as stubbed a toe. You know, I think that's kind of where we end the scene. I don't, I don't know if Ed has any any last little thing there. Not really. Uh, but you can see that the seeds of change are being planted within Maggie. Yeah. She's starting to realize what can come from this. So we go to the next scene involving Maggie, which is our quintessential dream sequence of Northern Exposure. So we find the cast of Northern Exposure in a very lush, overgrown, like forest of sorts. It's filled with all sorts of flowers. I was not able to identify, like, I was not going to identify <laughs> all those so flowers. Many. There was yeah. way too many. But there was one very important one that's in the foreground, which is a type of cherry blossom that I'm going to talk about soon. But I want to relay what happens in the scene very quickly. So in this dream sequence, we see that Ed is the, um, I don't really know what to call him. I, I guess he's like, the clerk? Yeah, he's I don't I was trying to write that down as well in my notes. I just I just wrote that he's like he's seeing like he's a he's attending to a line, a long line of people who have like all lined up to him and he's got like paper and pen or something and he's at a little desk. Yeah, he's like St. Peter for the pearly gates. Yeah. He's the one that makes sure uh, who gets admission into here <laughs> because there's a long line of people wanting to see Maggie. Uh, they bring her all sorts of things to cure. Uh, pox, a toaster. A toaster, yeah. <laughs> uh, someone has like a demonic possession. Or it's like, yeah. well, what, what do we have here? Demonic possession. You know, it's just like, <laughs> oh, um, I want to quickly say the, the, uh, the, the wardrobe is, it almost has like a medieval feel. Like Maggie is sort of like this uh, almost like goddess type. But everyone else is like lots of like, really long beards on these like bearded men. Everyone's kind of wearing robes, you know, but we do get like Marilyn in there. Uh, Ruthann is the one who says demonic possession. Uh, of course, uh, I think we figure out that it's uh, Maggie diagnoses it. She says, it's not demonic possession, just poor self-image. She does like a, a, a what do you call that? Um, a makeover for the for this lady. Yeah, she also fixes a blender. I think what's very important <laughs> in this scene is that all these items, at least in my opinion, are coming into play about gender. So you're fixing a toaster, a woman with poor self-image with a makeover, a blender, and previously she had fixed an electric razor that was predominantly used by women. These are all stereotypical tools used by housewives right here. And Maggie is the one fixing them right there. So... I think that in this dream sequence, it's indicating to her that she can fix this stuff, but she she wants to escape the shackling stereotypes of it. She wants to be reborn where she can transcend these objects that she is fixing. Okay, yeah, I can see some of that. I, my mind definitely didn't go to the sort of femininity of these items, but I you know I can't deny that Ruthann's razor, blender, and toaster. I guess yeah, if you if you say it's just like a stereotypical 
housewife. I could I could draw that connection. Yeah, they fixed a woman with the demonic possession with uh, with a makeover. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a very feminine uh, answer to to that problem of demo- demonic possession. Right. The other thing that I wanted to point out in this scene doesn't have to do with gender, but I think is very important for the for the theme of the episode of um, rebirth and time is that the flower that's in the foreground is from the genus of prunus. Those include fruits like cherries and plums. And I can't tell exactly which exact flower it is, but it definitely resembles cherry blossoms the most, which is a springtime blooming flower. Now, cherry blossoms are the quintessential visual shortcut for demonstrating the theme of mono no aware. It's uh, from Japan, mm. and it's yeah, it always is demonstrating the transient of time. So cherry blossoms always represent transient beauty that embody a sensitivity, pathos, or slight melancholy at the impermanence of all things. So on average, it takes a mere week for a cherry blossom tree to bloom before its petals fall to the ground. And during this short time frame, people love to go to cherry blossom trees for food and drink and appreciation for humanity's inability to solidly grasp the ephemeral beauty found in all things. So this fleeting nature is going to be found all throughout the episode right there. And I think it's very important that they have this cherry blossom tree always in the foreground of the shot showing us that, you know, things are going to end and things are going to begin, but it's never held down. It's impossible to control time. Yeah, that's a, and that's just a wonderful metaphor uh, with, the, with the cherry blossoms, you know, something that is so beautiful but only lasts for such a short window. And uh, yeah, why not? Uh, latch on to that metaphor with a lot of, uh, you know, if it fits with your story and and also it just looks beautiful for this dream sequence. And so Maggie wakes up from the dream. Uh, you know, we typically will get uh, after dream sequence, someone, you know, stirring in their bed. So we definitely know it was a dream. And uh, the music I should say throughout the sequence, I shazammed it. Uh, so I don't know if this is original to the broadcast or added on the DVD, but I think it fits pretty well. The music is uh, Johann Strauss. The song Anin Polka. Op, wh- I don't know what OP <laughs> what OP dot means. 137. Is that like opera 137 or <laughs> I should know this. Yeah, I think so. Opus. Of course, it means opus, like uh, work 137. Anin Polka, opus 137. Um, so the next time we see Maggie and or Joel... Oh, it's right after this, right? I think it's it's Maggie with Chris. Yeah, it's Maggie coming to Chris with advice on what to do if you need to change your identity right here. So what's happening here is that she's associating herself as being a negative force, but everyone else is pressing onto her that she can be a positive force. She can be something like an instrument of good. And Chris is saying like, you know, this could be like metamorphosis. Uh, this can be your change right here. It happens throughout history, from Lizzie Borden to Florence Nightingale, Grim Reaper to Angel. And he relates the metamorphosis metaphor using a mosquito. He says, like, it starts off as a pupa, then it grows up, and then becomes like this uh, parasite. Yeah, I think Chris even uses the phrase, like, reborn like a phoenix. I think he actually, sorry, I just was also flashback to... um, when Maggie's house burned down, he says, like, it's like a phoenix rising from the ashes. Well, this is another <laughs> uh, phoenix 
metaphor for Chris. But um, I also wanted to mention <laughs> there was a couple times, uh, not only in this scene, but throughout the episode when I was watching Chris and I, you know, I truly believed that there was like a mosquito or a bug flying around. I forgot that there were like mosquitoes featured in the episode. I thought the actor was just actually trying to swat. Like he's doing a really good job acting <laughs> that mosquitoes are flying around. I was thoroughly convinced. Yeah, no. <laughs> you see the mosquitoes all throughout the episode here. I think it's a really good theme that they're hammering home right here. So just like the cherry blossoms that are showing transient beauty, we can see that nothing stays the same right here. So Maggie doesn't necessarily have to stay the same human being that she was a month, a week, a year ago. In the same way that the mosquito doesn't have to stay the same way. It starts from a larva and then, you know, eventually becomes the mosquito. So... Yeah, uh, Chris even relates it to himself, saying that he used to be someone who robbed convenience stores. He was a criminal, but he changed himself. He wanted to become a poet. We also kind of see it with the pig that he is taking care of. We have not introduced this pig yet. I want to go more into depth with this pig when we get into Chris's storyline. But in this particular scene, the pig named Wilbur is also having his little bit of an identity crisis. He's supposed to be an individual that can find truffles, but... He's lacking the willpower to do so. Yeah. At the end of this scene, Chris asks Maggie if she would, uh, you know, use her special powers on Wilbur. Um, So, you know, we'll talk about Wilbur when we get to that plot line. We'll see maybe does it work? Does it not work? Um, But yeah, I like that. I guess we haven't arrived there yet, but Maggie begins to embrace this change that you're talking about. At this point, she's... You know, she's just sort of in these growing pains of it. You know, like I think you mentioned it. Everyone thinks of her as this positive force, but she knows her true self as she says, uh, a basically a destructive person. Um, but you know, she she will uh, learn to, uh, she will grow to, like sort of embrace this change. Oh, I don't know if this would apply to Wilbur's plotline, or I guess since Maggie says it, we can say it here. Uh, she looks over to Wilbur. And uh, she says, he looks sort of depressed. She says, maybe you should read to him. Everybody loves to be read to. So we'll we'll get to Wilbur's story time, you know, uh, when we get to that plot line. But to follow with Maggie and with Joel, uh, well, actually, this is a Joel scene because uh, Joel re-enters his office and um, he's complaining about Ruthann not stocking enough calamine lotion he says that it's negligence and malfeasance that she wouldn't have enough calamine knowing that they're about to enter this season with all these um, mosquitoes. Yeah, he, uh, she's out of calamine lotion to sell to Joel right here. It's really funny because this scene connects with Holling's storyline and then we see a little bit more of that plot line and then it cuts to Joel again yeah. dealing with the <laughs> same problem but like his solution to the problem <laughs> Right there. And then that also ends with uh, Shelly's plot line. So, yeah, it's like two halves of a whole. Yeah, he's that's true. Yeah, it's kind of weaving in throughout there. But let's just jump to Joel's um, solution since we're focusing on this storyline. His solution is uh, simply to make calamine lotion himself. He says calamine is a fairly simple mixture. It's just zinc oxide and ferric oxide and a little bit of mineral oil. And, uh, you know, Marilyn is walking in on Joel stirring this, this, uh, this large pot and he's trying to explain that to her. She's like curiously leaning over, inspecting the pot. 
And Joel is uh, a bit freaked out because he's out of ferric oxide. So, you know, like you said, Shelly will enter and we'll get a little bit of that. But I think Joel will like run over to Ruthann's store, like searching for more ferric oxide. Fe203, I think is uh, what yeah. he classifies it. Yeah. It says it's used in all manner of things. So I don't know if like that means he could distill it down to its components. Right. Yeah. And then I, just, yeah. <laughs> I don't think he's like, I think he's actually hoping that Ruthann will stock that like that ferric oxide. And she's. Of course, she says, no, like, I've never sold that in the whatever decades that I've been here. And Joel says, well, couldn't you just, like, check the back or something? <laughs> yeah. This is where Maggie steps in. She's got the mail for Ruthann, and Ruthann comes to her with a problem. She says that her arthritis has been acting up on her, and she wants to see if she can do a little bit of her uh, Our Lady Magic healing power on it. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it seems to work. You know, she's, like, rubbing... Uh, Ruthann's hands and Ruthann says, well, it feels a little bit better. And of course, Joel, I mean, Joel's still here. Of course, Joel should be concerned here because if Ruthann has arthritic pain, he's a doctor, you know, she should probably consult him or go to him. He could help her out. Joel like starts to egg Maggie on. I think they start walking out of the store. So it's like more of a walk and talk. He's, he's saying things like, uh, saying, saying things to Maggie like, you know, go, you could get yourself a tent, maybe some robes, go travel, take this show on the road and uh, make some money off of it or something. Um, and Maggie says, you know, if this if this is something that makes people feel better, what's wrong with that? And Joel will answer her, you know, uh, what's wrong is that you don't have that power, like you're not able to make them, you're deluding yourself, you're deluding them. He says, right. She attributes it with classic machismo. She is once again going into a very gender specific uh, argument right here, which I think it's which I think is very important. She tells Joel that he just wants to keep a woman hobbled and lock her in a double oh, yeah. mind. He's trying to chain her down onto what Maggie perceives is to be an injustice. Now I understand where Joel is coming from. He, he is a medical professional. He's seeing her. You know, in his eyes, he's she's pulling a charlatan act. She's absolutely going nuts, uh, misdiagnosing people with uh, powers that she does not possess in his eyes. But Maggie is seeing this in a different way because uh, she says that she used to only see herself as this person who was responsible for death. She's always <laughs> been on that part of the equation, whereas she's never been in the front part of the equation, which is life. Now she's on that end, and she is she wants to be there. She's incredibly happy that her identity is changing toward that point, and she sees that Joel is the one with his uh, male gender outlook that is prohibiting her from changing. Yeah, I mean, she even says, I think towards the top of the scene when they're exiting Ruth Ann's store, she's like, you know, first I'm depressed, and you kind of put me down for that, you know, that I'm depressive and and just a downer for no reason. And then now when I'm happy, you're still criticizing me like this. So, you know, there's that double standard that she points out. And um, I think by the end of the scene, she's she says something like, uh, you know, she's realized that this is um, me healing me. Like she thought she was healing everyone else. But, you know, if she really turns it inward, she thought she was cursed and doomed. But she's affecting people in a good way. She says, it's a new me, and I like it that way. So even if we can say that 
Joel is like right, and Maggie doesn't have any magic powers, and she can't heal people, which is probably true. Maybe she's just been getting really lucky. But also, this is Sicily, Alaska. We could throw some magical realism in there. But let's just say that Maggie doesn't have any magic powers. Just uh, being in this situation, I think, Charles, you're kind of hitting on this, has allowed Maggie to put that new perspective on her life. Like you were saying, she's always had to be sort of, uh, she's always had to bear the burden of all these like dead ex-lovers, like all her boyfriends have all died. Now she can like put her life in perspective as if like, oh, like my life doesn't have to be about um, all these troubles that I've had and these lost ones. It can be about helping other people. So maybe she doesn't really have powers, but at least she has like a new perspective and she can see that, uh, you know, she wants to be that person for other people. Right. And I think it's also interesting that there's emphasis on her throughout this entire episode as the girlfriend that kills boyfriends. Mm. Whereas, you know, you're equating her to just this gender specific noun, this girlfriend right there. And she, I, I think that she just wants to escape that both, you know, for the obvious reason, she doesn't want to be responsible for people dying and she doesn't want to be relegated to just like this gender specific thing. Yeah, she's not just like the generic female girlfriend character. She's stepping above that, you know. She's a fully formed character. Uh, now, the next time we see them is, uh, well, we see Joel first. He's in his cabin in sort of like a metal tub. Uh, you know, I guess it occurs to me that Joel doesn't have a bathtub. He has like a shower. But in this scene, he seems to have brought in some sort of metal tub that he's uh, he's bathing in. He's just kind of like, sitting relaxing in this metal bathtub and how is he uh oh go ahead how was he gonna drain that that's a good point i guess with the hose you could siphon it with the hose that would be the only way i think yeah i think (laughs) that would be the only way you'd have to like run a hose out and siphon it out (laughs) i'm sorry i interrupted you but no actually that would be difficult because if you think about it what we learn could maggie walks in uh and uh, Joel explains that this bath is colloidal oatmeal because that neutralizes the pH of the skin and it stops the itching. Well, it works for chicken pox, but it apparently doesn't really work well for mosquito bites. At least it's not working well for Joel right here. Yeah, like the, the sorry, going back to the idea of trying to get this water out of his uh, cabin. If he was trying to siphon that out of the tub, I imagine the oatmeal might clog the <laughs> the hose. So I don't know. I'm afraid that Joel's not going to have any way of – he's going to have to like bucket, take bucket by bucket to get it out of his house. Yeah, and he has like hardwood floors too. Like you can't spill that water down there. <laughs> he's going to ruin those floors. We get a nice like flirty scene because Maggie has uh, – this isn't anything magical, but she's still – applying that sort of perspective on her life that she's going to do good and like help others, you know, and be a positive force. Uh, cause, cause she doesn't always have to be negative. It's not so much that like, cause there's another episode where Maggie's like, I'm just decided I'm going to be nice to people. And that like hurts her. Do you remember that episode? Mm-hmm. What episode was yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. She um, like gets like physical pain. <laughs> yeah. But it's not so much like that. I like that. This is a, this is different from that episode in that it's more about like this, um, maybe stress or anxiety that has plagued Maggie. We can kind of step, or at least I've been stepping in to her psyche, the idea that like, you know, she's always been this cause of death or something, but now she can view her life as positive. So 
as I said, it's not like uh, uh, it's not like a magic trick or anything. She's just brought some new window screens. She's just trying to do the right thing. She's gonna um, install these new window screens in Joel's apartment, and uh, it gets a little flirty. Like I said, like Joel's sitting there in this tub of colloidal oatmeal, and uh, what? How does it come up? I think Maggie's like, well, you know, there is something I can do that'll make you feel better, and Joel like kind of slyly like opens his eyes and he's like, Oh yeah. She says, I'm not getting in this muck with you. I was just, I think I was just thinking about scratching your back or something. So it's, you know, she gives him like a, a back scratch from all those mosquito bites and, uh, he's, he's loving it. He's very thankful. <laughs> yeah. Very simple scene is simple resolution. It's nothing really to write home about, but it's also nothing to go <laughs> right to the, uh, writers to complain about either. Yeah. Well, at least it is like, a, um, I feel like lately with Joel and Maggie, they've been, they've been getting a lot closer. Um, obviously since Mike has left, but I feel like we've said this on the cottage for uncle Manny episode, like they're in a good place. Like they're not, they don't want to kill each other. Like they're very, uh, their relationship is going good. Okay, so which of the two plot lines should we investigate next then? We have Shelly and Holling, or we have Chris and Maurice. All right, well, let's see. My choice, let's do Shelly and Holling. That's a very short one, I think. Yeah, it's relatively short. So let's rewind back to the beginning of the episode. Yeah, Shelly is first seen serving Chris some garlic-infused dishes. Like every every, uh, part of the dish has some garlic in it. And she even offers him a... It's like, would you like a raw clove? And he's like, sure. He takes one, like pops it in his mouth. So just <laughs> sort of like scene dressing the idea that everyone's been eating a lot of garlic. That's that's the uh, it's the old wives' tale, or that's the remedy they they have here in Sicily. And uh, Shelly in this scene, also she's like running around in the brick. She's very clean. She's like cleaning up a lot of stuff. I think she's commenting on like, oh, well, these people left such a mess here. Can you believe that? And Hauling, on the other hand is playing with uh, a handful of uh, rice, like grains of rice. And he's just let, letting them fall out of his hand, scooping them back up. And he says, uh, actually, I can't remember if he's like, Shelly, what does this remind you of? Or is he just like, this reminds me of? Uh, no, go- yes, Shelly. Okay, yeah. What does this remind you of? And, oh, because she says, I remember this now. She says, weddings? Because they throw rice at weddings. And, uh, Rat poop, I think, is what she says. <laughs> yeah, uh, but to hauling, it represents seeds. It goes into some sort of primal instinct within him saying that he wants to grow something right there. Yeah, I, I think that's a very on-the-nose metaphor. But what I think is very interesting is that, like you said before, Shelley is cleaning up a lot. But Holling wants to go out into the field and get his hands wet. He wants to get some mud on them. Two juxtapositions between them. And you can almost look at it like a gender thing where Shelly wants to clean up and Holling wants to get much more dirtier. Now, let me ask you, Charles, did you like predict what was going on at this point in the episode? No, I didn't. I like... I kind of knew like something there was like obviously subtext because the <laughs> yeah, sub yeah. I don't know what the subtext was <laughs> but it was obviously there because it's it's uh, it's always that you know when you talk about spring it's always about rebirth it's right. always about the starting of new life right there and he's talking about seeds he's talking about plowing f- fields and sowing seeds I I, I wasn't 
too sure, but I knew it was like, all right, well, something's probably you had a feeling like, dramatic is about to happen. Yeah, you just weren't going to jump on anything yet. You wanted the episode to play out, uh, which yeah, which you know, if we continue here with hauling, uh, I think he said something like, "I've lost touch with the earth." He basically announces that he needs to be a farmer right now, so he approaches this Mister Springer, this guy who is apparently a farmer in Sicily, and he wants to work for Mister Springer and. Of course, Springer is suspicious, uh, but Hollings like, no, I used to do this when I was like 17 or whatever, or I used to, when he was a boy, he used to uh, work on a family farm maybe, or he, he mentions farming a lot. He he goes so much to offer a proposition for uh, Mr. Springer here. If I don't get something to plan, I feel like I'll jump out of my skin. It goes without saying I'll work for free. Free? Well, yeah. Uh, well, I suppose I could pay you something not much but say thirty dollars a day i like that because you know first hauling says you know of course of course it goes without saying i'll work for free and uh springer is immediately like free okay okay and then hauling's like well and it seems like hauling's about to back it back off a little like uh take that back but he like goes even further. He says, you know, I, I will I will pay you $30 a day if you let me work for you. <laughs> I think if this was being filmed in 2021, the person that would be cast in Mr. Springer's role would absolutely be Patton Oswalt. <laughs> yeah, that is a very Patton Oswalt type. Like it would totally fit there, uh, especially today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see who's the like. We should shout out the the name of that actor. I, I saw it um, flash up when it was like um, guest star or featuring. Let me let me see who that is. He's uh he's featured on a previous episode. He's in he's in the episode Our Wedding. Gosh, I can't remember as what role. The same character. He's so Mr. Springer. The it's credited as Ivory Springer, and this uh, he's apparently he's credited in Our Wedding. Uh, we'll have to go back and see. Maybe we could do like, so spoiler alert, he'll come back. Um, ooh, he's going to return in this season, actually. So, yeah. but I was going to say like, we should do like a Patreon episode or do something where it's like the Ivory Springer episode because he's a recurring character three times. It's pretty, mm. pretty interesting. Most characters don't, I guess like Barbara Szymanski, she appears multiple times. That would be another fun one to track. Adam and Eve, obviously. Adam is definitely like, yeah. Yeah, they they have the most common appearances. But there are a lot of great uh, characters who, you know, they don't make so many recurring appearances. Like we were saying, um, like the mayor of Sicily. I think she's still, like Edna, I'm pretty sure she's still the mayor. But I, I'm afraid, I don't think she will return to this series. I haven't looked it up, but I'm just guessing. Oh, okay. I, I think I found them. Okay. In, in Our Wedding? Yeah, so Officer Szymanski goes out into the into a oh, farm. Oh yeah, because something's happening with like the uh, what's going on? It's like there's a dispute. Oh, it was like when the the neighbor. I'm assuming it's Ivory Springer said that Maurice had his land excavated, and like there was an explosion, and that explosion caused some <laughs> flying debris to hit like some animals. Yeah, hurt some cows so, or something. Yeah, and that's why she had to like go off into the field and go talk to Ivory Springer. That's it. So there you go, Ivory Springer. And then uh, he will apparently make an appearance again in this season, which is almost over, so very soon. Hi, quick punch and edit. I forgot to mention that the actor's name is Ralph P. Martin. Okay, so uh, we've got Holling 
paying to work for Mr. Springer. And, uh, we get, I think we don't really get a, like, you know, this is probably one of the more minor plot lines of the episode though. I think when we see Holling or Shelley again, I think it's when, I believe it's when Holling's like pulling the plow. Yeah. So the next scene that we see Holling would be him pulling the plow with, um, Ivory Springer there running some, um, what is that thing called? It's, it's not a, it's like it's a, not tractor? a tractor. It's not a tractor. Is it a tractor? I thought tractors had like the little, um, thing at the front of it i'm not sure oh shoot it is a tractor <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't he, he doesn't have any like plow behind it or anything he's, i think he's just driving it up to go to go talk to hauling because uh well hauling made it clear in the last scene that he's not going to work with machinery he wants to do it you know with his body he wants to like feel really connected to the earth and yeah hauling is like he, he looks pretty rough he's been looks like he's been uh working a lot and it turns out that he spent like the entire day. He's had to go back and forth on this one track because I guess the manual plow just doesn't work very well. Obviously, it probably doesn't work as as efficiently as the machine, uh, or you know, it, as it's not as easy to operate as the as the tractor. So, mm-hmm. hauling is like basically wasted the entire day just like going back and forth with this with this manual plow. Yeah, all he's really done is uh, get really muddy going into the theme of mud and blood <laughs> oh, right here. Yeah, okay. That's true. But yeah, the scene ends with him pulling some body part. I don't think it's made clear what he's pulled. Yeah, he's just like, ow. And uh, that's when he goes to uh, to, to Joel's office. Um, you know, this is when Joel is complaining about Ruth Ann not stocking enough calamine lotion. And he's uh, it's before Joel starts making his own calamine lotion, but <laughs> hauling enters and, uh, you know, it's his back that's in pain. It's all messed up. Uh, Joel does like, he's like, all right, like, let me check your this and that. He says, your, your reflexes are hyperactive. Hauling says hyperactive. That's good. Right. Joel has to correct him. No, it means your nerves in your neck are impinged. So I don't even know what that means, but yeah, obviously this is very bad. He's, I think he even says hauling. You're like, you're going to cripple yourself. Yeah, uh, Holling still wants to go out there and plow the fields. He's not happy with his work. Uh, he asked Joel for a cortisone shot, which is, I don't know if they still do that, but apparently like uh, they would inject some sort of chemical into football players so they can give them more um, more stamina, more spirit, mm. more illegal drug. I don't, I don't know if it's illegal. <laughs> they give them something yeah. to keep them going in the field. I think it's very interesting that Joel says, like, okay, that's a very quick fix, and it can also come with, like, a bunch of uh, serious side effects. One of the effects would be a negative one on sexual potency, which gets Holling's attention. Yeah, and we're starting to put together this theme of, like, he needs to sow the seeds, and maybe that's more of a uh, reproductive intent here. Um, something I had skipped over, but uh, when he's when uh, I think it's before hauling is like about to really pull his back, he he says, "Every step is a mountain of pain. I should have a sense of fulfillment, but I don't. Like you know, the the plowing, the being a farmer, it's not doing, it's not fulfilling this instinct he has. So perhaps there's another uh, another interpretation of of this instinct. I think basically, uh, you know, Joel just tells Hauling at the end of this scene, uh, you need to, you just need bed rest. Like absolutely no physical labor. He says physical labor is absolutely contraindicated. Uh, do no heavy work. Just go 
uh, you know, just go, go, go get some bed rest. I like, uh, hauling is basically just like chilling on the couch or like, you know, he's like laying down in bed most of the time. Uh, just jumping to the next scene, which is a short one. Uh, Shelly is acting quite motherly. I would say, you know, she's even got like a roller in her hair, uh, which, you know, that's like her hairstyle, but for some reason, those rollers just remind me of like older ladies or moms or something. So, uh, her appearance and then just her taking care of hauling as he's, uh, as he's injured feels, feels very motherly. Right. Uh, what I noted in this scene, I'm going to be reaching a little bit right here, but the ornaments on top of their radio is a snowman and a rabbit. The rabbit is easier for me to grasp. I think it deals with fertilization. Rabbits are always okay. symbolized as yeah. that. So you can already see a little bit of a hint right there. The snowman, if I'm reaching a little bit, is that everything's going to come to an end. So it, I think it's <laughs> odd that they even have a snowman ornament out there in the first place, which is why I'm attaching symbolic meaning behind it. Otherwise, if it was like around Christmas, I'd be like, yeah, it's just a snowman statue. But in this particular case, I think it's odd that it's still out here in February. So snowmans naturally will melt. That's just how it goes. Yeah. That it will always disappear right there. So I think it's saying that like their way of life is going to melt away. Yeah. Maybe that's read again too far, but that's still such a beautiful metaphor like the cherry blossoms, it's ephemeral. You know, it's, like you said, it's always going to melt. It's going to go away. Yeah, so I'll, I'll allow it. I like it. <laughs> Let's see. We said Shelly um, has been acting motherly. We cut to Joel trying to make this calamine concoction. And uh, when he's freaking out about his ferric oxide, Shelly enters. She says, something mega weird is going on with me. I think she says, like, I think you need to look under the hood something mega weird is going on with me. And uh, I like that it like, you know, obviously they don't want to spoil a surprise. So they like cut away and we don't really see Shelly or hauling for a bit until, well, I think it's Shelly like waking, hauling up. Maybe he's on the couch. She says, I, I, I'm pregnant. I'm preggers. <laughs> well, she says like, she says like uh, the, uh, you know, the whole thing, like how you've been obsessed with seeds and stuff. You know, he's like, yeah, like I, I, I'm a terrible farmer. It's never going to work. And she says, no, like you, you're really good at it. It's just like, not that kind of seed. It's like, it's the fruit of the loom. You know, she's like, lists, lists off all these, um, euphemisms and stuff like that. Yeah. When she enters the room, there is a painting to her left of some white birds. I don't think they're storks, but if they are storks, oh, it works uh, in its yeah. favor. <laughs> I mean, you might as well go full, you know, dive full in. You, you're already hammering home rebirth so hard this episode. <laughs> like, yeah. why not just go full hog with it right there? <laughs> this is a pretty scene. I think this is a beautiful scene uh, because while well, Shelly addresses once again uh, sort of Hollings' anxieties with fatherhood, in a previous episode, you know, he's kind of kept this secret from Shelly that his entire bloodline, the Vincour bloodline, is... Uh, Tainted with just like evil, evil, terrible people. But, you know, Shelly reassures him once again. Uh, she says, you know, well, I, I kind of wrote down some of her words because she has her own way of speaking. She says, uh, the little spud is going to have a hefty dose of tambo in her. And even if she is a horrible uh, vincorette, she can change. 
look at you, H. You should have turned out to be a regular Freddy Krueger. Uh, but she's like, you turned out to be a really righteous dude. <laughs> and, and it's it's fun jargon, but I also do really feel, maybe just because like I, I'm so like in love with all the characters in Northern Exposure, but I really feel some some love and comfort in this scene here. Yeah, it's a great scene. They're tying together the themes from both plot lines into this one scene because they're trying to demonstrate that you can be anything you want to be. Shelley says she can be anything she wants to be. So your identity is tied to what you determine it to be. So spring is coming for rebirth, and with rebirth comes a new you. So Maggie can decide if she wants to be an instrument of good, and Shelley and Holling can affirm that their child doesn't have to be cursed by Holling's bloodline. Yeah, because in the end, like all things will go through change. Like spring is is change in itself. And that should be a reminder to Holling that, you know, you don't have to worry about a, a cursed bloodline. Uh, one, we've got really great parents. And two, like people are able to change. That's probably the last bit of Holling and Shelley's storyline. But we do see them once more at the very end uh, during like the Mosquitoes um, Festival celebration. Yeah, festival. Uh, it's actually a pretty cool shot. They linger on it for a while. It almost feels like that's going to be like the very end shot of the episode because, because of the way they linger on it. And, and it's them sitting in lawn chairs by the lake and they're like just eating. Oh, I did skip something like hauling, uh, at the, at the festival, like at the, uh, the potluck table or whatever. Uh, he's loading a lot of different foods onto Shelly's plate. Because he says, you know, you got to realize you're eating for two. And Shelly says, that's true. You know, like he's, they're good. they got to feed the baby. And uh, well, the last little moment I was talking about, I really like it's it's hauling and Shelly and the lawn chairs by the lake eating. And it's the sound of the party. Like we don't really hear the sound of hauling and Shelly. I can't, I don't remember if they're like talking to each other, but there's no like sync dialogue or anything. We still hear the celebrations around them. It's almost like we're like far away watching them. And again, yeah, just the fact that it kind of lingers on this shot for a bit. Uh, it was a nice little moment that feels like you're like peeking in onto something from the outside. Very, very uh, you call that subjective or I guess so. Yeah. Subjective view, I guess. Yeah. Like we're the outside and we're now glimpsing into their own personal moment between them. So it's like uh, they're in their own little world, like uh, like in a glass bottle and we're the ones peering inside. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good catch, man. No, yeah. it's a, Well, it's a, it's a lovely little shot, I think. A lovely little moment that they gave us there at the end. But that's not the end of the episode. And we still also have another plot line. So we can reel it back to the beginning with uh, Chris and Maurice and the prized truffle hunting pig, Wilbur. Yeah. So Chris gets his new best friend, as he deems him, the king of the <laughs> forest, Wilbur. He introduces it to Ruth Ann. I think this is very important. She calls him handsome. She calls this pig handsome right here, which is usually an adjective for men. You would use it for the male gender right here. And Chris explains like what they're going to be using him for. Uh, Joel also strolls in. And this is where Joel asks Chris saying like, why do we have a mosquito festival in the first place? Like, I don't think we should be honoring them. I don't think we should be doing anything of celebratory involving them. They suck. Uh, you know, why are you doing this? And Chris's answer is uh, kind of unique in that he talks about the biology. He talks about how the mosquitoes reproduce, saying that the women are actually in the more dominant position over than the men. They've evolved past what 
the humans would ordinarily do it as. Yeah. Okay. I I'm starting to uh, embrace your approach to this episode, uh, sort of this dichotomy of the masculine, the feminine, uh, because if we don't have that, this is quite a non sequitur for Chris to just kind of come out. He basically, <laughs> he literally says, think about the sex. And he's like, you know, the, the mosquito has like a penis, a vagina, a testicle. Like, you know, he's like, it's, I'm like, what are you, Chris, get your head out of the gutter. But if you do, if you do um, place that uh, analysis on it of like the, the feminine, the masculine, uh, I think I can understand why, because it's pretty. It was non sequitur for me when I watched it this time again. I was, I was just like, "What's going on?" But yeah, no, I do agree with uh, Joel here. Like mosquitoes, I guess. Like I've always thought, like, why can't we just like get rid of mosquitoes? I guess the I guess the truth is, if you were to eliminate all mosquitoes, it would really like screw up some sort of like food chain somewhere down the line. I don't know how true that is. Oh wait, didn't like Hank Green? Like talk about this. Yeah. Like, wouldn't yeah. it actually be a better world without mosquitoes? I think. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a net positive gain. So, like, a lot of people like to say, they're like, oh, if you eliminated every single one of the mosquitoes, it would ruin the animals that feed on the mosquitoes, which in you know ruins what those animals eat, and so on and so on. So it would disrupt the entire cycle. But mosquitoes don't just cause West Nile disease. They cause malaria. They cause all sorts of terrible, terrible, life-threatening diseases right there. So getting rid of them could actually just be like a net positive for humanity and all of those that all of us that live on this planet. (laughs) Yeah. So we don't, we haven't really talked about this, but why, why do you think the town is celebrating the mosquito? Like, why are they so gung-ho about that? Well, other than attributing it to Sicily being wacky, um, <laughs> I think that there's a line that Chris says where he's saying, like, no pain, no gain. Yeah. So yeah, maybe he does in say that. some weird, convoluted way, <laughs> they think that, like, you need to have the mosquitoes here for there to officially be spring. Without yeah. this uh, terribleness, you, you couldn't complete the entire cycle. Yeah. I was going to say, like, you know, it's a, it's a harbinger of the spring, of the season. Uh, but, what you just said also amplifies the idea that, uh, you know, spring has so many beauties and wonders, but, uh, you know, let's never forget that, you know, there are, there are hardship. There is hardship in life and pain, mud and, and mosquitoes. Those things suck and those things come with the spring. So it's sort of a, sort of a tongue in cheek way of celebrating. You're like, we're going to have fun. We're going to drink this, uh, what is it? Uh, crowberry wine uh, listen to some music, but uh, just don't forget that. <laughs> don't forget that life also sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I also forgot to mention this now that you brought it up again, but um, Holling gets a lot of mud on himself whenever he's working in the field. Uh, in a lot of religions and cultures, uh, human beings are created from mud slash clay. Right. That's very true. Yeah, there's a, that's a, sort of a rebirth or just like a creation. Right. But we're off of that plot line right now. Let's let's jump back into Chris and Maurice. And we're going to see them together with Wilbur trying to find some truffles right here. Now, there has always been the depiction of pigs uh, in truffle hunting. 
Uh, it's been doing that for like a couple hundred years. But nowadays, it's almost better to use a dog for truffle hunting. Oh. They're easier to train. They won't eat the truffle like <laughs> the Wilbur tries to do in this episode. <laughs> and they have more stamina than a pig. Yeah. I guess, okay, I guess dogs just obviously have really good uh, sense of smell. So you could train them. Like if you, you, know, you train them like you would to to sniff out a drug or something, you're sniffing out these truffles. Why was it pigs in the first place? Were pigs just like, uh, I, I mean, obviously in nature, they would probably forage. So you could see like this pig is like digging underground for something and it's like eating something. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. this pig is finding food where I, I can't see it. Like, wh- where is this? And someone f- figures out that they're yeah. truffles. Pigs naturally want to find truffles. They yeah, they okay. really enjoy them. So when I say that dogs are easier to train, I mean like they're easier to train to be like, hey, come here, hey, sit down, yeah. that that stuff. But you still have to train the dog to associate finding the truffle with positive association, like probably yeah. giving him a treat or playing fetch with him. Pig, you don't got to do that. Pig wants <laughs> – yeah. he naturally <laughs> wants to find the truffle. So you set him free, he's going to go do it. Yeah, pig will find it just naturally. Though I do wonder like what has better like olfactory – senses if a dog versus a pig i, I would I think it's a dog i would guess a dog um but uh so it may not come naturally to a dog but maybe you could train it and it would be an even better like you're saying an even better uh truffle hunter but uh i'm glad we have wilbur in this episode he's a cute <laughs> he's a cute adorable humongous pig but uh like uh oh that's what it was ruthann was like what is this like a some sort of boar and he says uh what type of what type of pig does he say Ohio Chesterfield? Yeah, what was it? Uh, Ohio Chesterfield, I think. Ohio Chesterfield. Yeah, I, d- I didn't write it down. So that's the type of pig that Wilbur is. Uh, Maurice is kind of just talking about truffles, how uh, amazing they are. He says the Tartufo Bianco is incomparable. I had to look that up. Tartufo Bianco d'Alba. It's an extremely rare Italian white truffle. Maurice says it has a little taste of garlic and a sousant of oak. I also looked up Susan. I think it just means like a small quantity of something. Uh, he says, wait till you taste my rabbit pate. Uh, Maurice also mentions that he's like the last time he did a price check, truffles were going for like $900 a pound. So anytime they mention like the cost of something extravagant on the show, I like to try to price check it with current day. Uh, just a quick, quick cursory Google search. Uh, brings a cnbc.com article why truffles are so expensive uh $250 per pound for summer black truffles $350 per pound for burgundy and $800 per pound for winter black and 2000 to $4000 for alba white truffles which are the ones that uh Maurice is talking about so the price does seem to have risen since uh, he last hit a price check, he said $900 a pound. It can get as expensive as $4,000 a pound. Yeah, that is uh, insane. <laughs> I think it's become like a I, – I, I don't want to misspeak on this, but I think that in certain places it's not legal in Italy to go searching for truffles. Like it's like Ooh, private okay. property or something. Yeah, yeah. So when you show up with a pig, it's super <laughs> obvious what you're doing. But if you show up with a dog, oh, there you, you could be like, I'm just watching my dog. Even better uh, <laughs> argument for the dog hunting truffles. Uh, Charles, have you ever had truffles? Uh, maybe. Like, I, okay, okay. I don't think this counts. But I once had like Trader Joe's potato <laughs> yeah. chips that had like truffles. Truffle oil. Truffle oil. Yeah, like truffle it. oil. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of I've, like, you know, it's the essence of 
Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever had truffles? <laughs> I've had the truffle oil. Yeah, I, I I think I've had truffles. The thing is, like, it was probably in such a small, like, I don't think I've ever had, like, here's a truffle. So, like, I wasn't really even sure what truffles tasted like. So I wasn't, like, knowing what to expect. But they're just like, yeah, this has truffles on it. And uh, so I think I've probably had it. It's If so, once or twice. To me, if I had to wager a guess at what they tasted like, like savory, salty, uh, but again, maybe it was just what it was mixed into. I imagine it's like an umami thing because they're also like a fungus. I don't know. I'm, 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 I don't really know. I'm not, I'm not a, uh, truffle aficionado. I get the sense that like for most palates, like truffle, you, you don't need to do, you don't, you don't want to overdo truffles. Um, but I guess maybe in this case in Sicily, if they're going to get a lot of truffles, they're going to like, you know, hearing what Maurice is talking about, all these dishes, like he's going to go all in on these, uh, on these truffles. <laughs> so, you know, you might as well, if you got your own, if you got your own, uh, truffle pig. Yeah. After that conversation that Maurice has with Chris about it, Chris has like a neat little, uh, parable with, uh, truffles. Huh, that sounds good. But you know, the thing that gets my juices flowing is the whole truffle metaphor thing. You know, think about it, Maurice, how the... Dank corruption of the forest floor, you know, the black root of, of humus comes as perfect food, you know? This total gift of nature, the whole gestalt is just so spring. Stevens, is anything simple to you? Maurice, life and death rolled up in one little fungus? What could be simpler, man? Yeah. Truffles are spring, he says. <laughs> yeah. Uh, truffles reproduce asexually. They actually don't have a gender right there. So I think that that was kind of unique. Ooh, yeah. Um, one other important thing in this scene is that they switch the pronouns on Wilbur. Whenever Wilbur is having problems trying to find the truffle, uh, Maurice says that he's going to stick an apple in her mouth and put her on the spit. Oh, yeah. And then Chris even says, like, well, maybe she's having problems right there. Uh, there's two ways to read this scene. One is the much more cynical, harmful way of saying, like, they're attributing the female gender to be one of uh, uselessness, one that cannot do a job. I don't really want to subscribe to that one because I think that that's a very hurtful view. I'm not saying that can't be a way to read the scene. I, I certainly do believe it could be read that uh, be read that way. Uh, I think that another way to read it is that Wilbur can actually change identities, much like the people in this episode. Wilbur can identify as female or as male right there. Wow, yeah. No, I, I, uh, I'm i glad you pointed that out because I actually do remember when they were referring to Wilbur with like the female pronouns. And then later in the episode, I'm like, wait, 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 it's name's Wilbur and they're starting to call it he. I was like, did I misremember that? I must have like, I must have like assumed that Wilbur was a, a girl at first. I totally didn't clock that. I thought I was just like misremembering, so... Yeah, but that is definitely, I can see that tying into uh, this analysis of the feminine, masculine, those attributes. But so Wilbur, being able to change identities, are you saying that that's sort of like relating to uh, the idea that spring can allow someone to change? Yeah. Going into that whole metaphor. Well, the scene ends with, um, uh, well, as you said, yeah, Wilbur is not really fu- really finding anything. She seems confused, as they say. Oh, I forgot to point this out because uh, it's the following scene. It's it's a Maggie scene. But, you know, you're talking about when Maggie is like 
surprised that her houseplant is still alive. You know, Ed mm-hmm. is Ed walks in and Maggie says, Ed, look at this plant. And Ed says, Okay. He just like looks at it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just think his his delivery is great. You know, it's very uh matter of fact to the point there. But returning to Chris and Wilbur and Maurice, you know, we talked about uh the scene where Maggie visits Chris for some advice, and then Chris ends up asking her to work her magic on Wilbur. But she says, you know, I just think he looks sort of depressed. Uh, Maybe you should read to him. Everybody loves to be read to. And that would bring us to uh, Chris and K-Bear reading Charlotte's Web. Of course, perfect, perfect story with a pig. Uh, And he's reading it across the airwaves, but also to a Wilbur who is in the studio Laying on a blanket. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and it even works because that particular passage that he's reading from is when Charlotte's laying her eggs. And she's talking about the 514 children that are going to be there. <laughs> but unfortunately, it's very sad. Charlotte is hinting that she will not see them do oh. that. She's saying that she will pass away. But, you know, you get the the new birth, the egg, which is, you know, Easter, spring, very uh, symbolic, uh, uh, strong symbol for this season. I think the next scene is out in the field. It's Chris, Maurice, and Wilbur. And uh, Chris is actually still reading to the pig. Like he brought the book out. He's still reading Charlotte's Web. Uh, but Wilbur just like starts running off uh, and is starting to dig up something from the dirt. Of course, they they finally found the truffle, uh, the truffles maybe. And they have to pull Wilbur away from the before he can eat the truffle. <laughs> yeah, he is referred to as a he now because Morty says he's just about a half hour from a meat hook. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, Wilbur's coming in clutch, pig in the forest, finding the truffles. Yeah, yeah, we forget to mention all the things that Maurice said. Like, you know, it's like he's going to uh, stick an apple in its mouth or like it'll become a luau. You know, they keep referring to, um, well, Maurice says he's like, he's going to make good on his investment. If this doesn't turn up any truffles, at least he'll like cook the pig for like food or something. (laughs) But thankfully we get the truffles. We find the truffles. Yeah. That brings us to the last scene, which is the mosquito festival. All the characters are coming together in this final scene where they got uh, a band playing. Is this the original music or did they uh, dub it with something else? Well, it does seem to be, I'm not, sure for this first moment but uh i guess i wasn't paying too much attention i was just like freaking out like live music yes mosquito festival <laughs> but no yeah uh definitely like the last song that they play probably some other uh needle drops here it was uh how do you call that um it's like pre-recorded and they're like lip syncing to it so it very well may be like their own live performance but uh they would be hearing playback and performing to the playback that is like pre-recorded uh, so I guess the way you would shoot a music video, it's probably why mm. they shot it that way anyway. A lot easier to shoot than just live music. But I wouldn't be surprised that the music that's playing is uh, was originally recorded by the by the band and it might have been recorded in a live setting, you know? Uh, they're just like, I think I think what you're seeing is uh, something I didn't notice when they were first playing, but they're they might just be playing along to a track that was pre-recorded. Okay, nice. It's a lovely festival that they have going on here. They're pulling this rope between two sides right there. Uh, They're on the mud, so that makes it much more difficult. Uh, Kids are playing in the mud. I like that. (laughs) Wilbur's in the background also in the mud. I didn't catch this before, but like pigs are associated with mud. They do love rolling around on it so that they can cool down. (laughs) 
That's true. Yeah, that's why they do it. Like we always think of like pigs are so unclean and uh, they roll around and slop, but I think that's that's the way they cool off. Just as like a dog will sweat through its tongue, I guess a pig's got to like cool off in this uh, in this mud. Yeah, and the troubles pay off in the end because Maurice has uh, he's baked this thing that. I don't think I'm right, but it looks just like bread. Like, is it just bread with truffle? He says truffle brioche. And then I think he does drop the term sweetbreads, but I don't know if he's, I mean, we talked about this before. I don't know if he's talking about like the, like the term sweetbreads, which is like, what is it? Like pancreas and some other stuff. Yeah. Or if it's actually just, he's, he means bread. Cause brioche is bread here. It looks like bread too. So he might have okay. probably just put a little bit of truffle, like make it a little savory bread. Yeah, and he gives it to Marilyn, who approves of it. And then uh, he calls to everybody, let's tap the keg. He asks, okay, let's uh, diving into your sort of masculine and feminine. He like announces that Ruthann should, should tap the keg because of, uh, I didn't write down the quote, but he's like, he makes a point of saying like, you know, it ought to be like a woman to do this or something. What does he say? Yeah, traditionally, it's like a woman that christens something. Oh, yeah, christens something. That's true. Uh, and it's cool. You get to see them actually, like, she, like, bangs the uh, the keg with, like, this mallet. It springs a leak. And Maurice pops in the little wooden spout from which he serves everybody this, like, crowberry wine, which uh, we get, we get like, set up at the very beginning, I think, when Chris is talking about spring and the festival and a uh, bunch of crowberries have been harvested. They're going to make a good wine. Uh, Joel gets a taste of it. Actually, I think it's cool. Like, Joel is just, like, sitting there talking with Maggie, and Dave walks by with, like, a jar and hands it to to Joel. He's like, oh, thanks, Dave. And uh, Joel drinks this jar of crowberry wine, and he says it's like a petite Syrah. <laughs> so I've never – I don't think I've ever had crowberry or crowberry wine, but uh, looks good. Yeah, that's when we get to the very last scene where Chris takes up to the stage, gives off a monologue. Uh, do you know where that monologue is from? Uh, let's figure it out. I'll go ahead and play it. Uh, we'll play the soundbite, and when we return, we'll tell you what poem this is from. Hey, everybody, I want to make a toast. <laughs> For winter's rains and ruins are over and all the season of snows and sins, the days dividing lover and lover, the light that loses and the night that wins. Frosts are slain and flowers begotten, and in the green underwood and cover, blossom by blossom, spring begins. To the hardy mosquito, Sicilian! So it's taken from a poem by Algernon Charles Swinburne. Uh, I believe it's uh, When the Hounds of Spring is the name of the poem. And, but of course, you know, that last little bit about the mosquito and Sicilians, that was added on by Chris. That wasn't <laughs> originally written. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the music starts up. That's This is when I noticed that it was like a, a, a playback situation where they're just like playing to pre-recorded music. Uh, the music starts back up. I think it's because like the singer maybe opens his mouth uh, right before he does like a... Because the song starts with like sort of like a, a long sort of yell or like a, yaw, a long note. Uh, but the singer maybe opens his mouth a little too early and then the music kicks in. Mm. That's how I noticed it. But yeah, they dance this out. And uh, yeah, I, I have to say also, I uh, I really like the music that the live band plays. It seems like, a, I don't know, it just seems like a lot of fun. All right, Charles, it's that time in the episode when we're going to bring on a guest, someone who has never seen the show before. Uh, we'd like to expand the reach 
see if they like this show. But mostly we just want to get their initial reaction, their opinions, their thoughts, what they thought about this episode, and you know maybe what the series could hold overall. But anyway, our guest today is my good friend, Andres. Andres is a filmmaker in New Orleans. And uh, recently he was over at my house for my birthday. We were talking about uh, whenever, whenever we took a break, Charles uh, had some vaccinated friends over and uh, we ended up talking a little bit about Northern Exposure. Andres has never seen it. So of course I had to ask him to check it out. Uh, let's see what Andres thinks about this episode. Hey, Thank you for uh, letting me be part of the podcast. I got to finally see the episode of Moth and Blood of Northern Exposure. Um, I never heard of the show other than at your birthday party when uh, someone pointed out the uh, cooking book that you had. And um, when you asked me, I remember, well, I figured out it was from that the cooking book, but I didn't know it was an actual TV show. Uh, you know, this one is different from other comedy shows that I've seen. I... Uh, I think I'm very used to the urban comedy, like, uh, you know, uh, Parks and Recreation, um, Friends, uh, Peep Show, you know, but I've never seen comedy from, like, a place like Alaska. And uh, I've always been curious about that place and the map. Uh, I met two other people, and they always tell me that, you know, the landscapes are amazing whatnot, but I never got to see what the sense of humor is like or, um, you know, how people interact. And uh, I never seen the show. I read a quick synopsis, and it's, I think it's kind of cool that someone from New York City moves into that place and uh, just kind of goes through the adaptation of how different things are. And on this episode, I thought it was very funny because now I started to get bit by mosquitoes today. Uh, how he hates just the, all the mosquitoes and he just finds it crazy that the town wants to throw a f mosquito festival, even though, you know, he says that those creatures are just like the worst. Uh, but, you know, aside from the doctor, I thought Maggie was a really cool character. I did enjoy the way in which she, you know, claims to be a, a realistic person and also uh, how she listens to the people that she interacts with and gives them just like down to her advice or like her point of view. And in some way, all the people really appreciate it, makes them feel better. Or sometimes they make the, you know, the best uh, decisions. Like the guy, hey, you know, the guy that almost got hit by the sign. I thought it was really cool that she didn't know she was going to save him from getting hit. Or uh, the lady at the store that, you know, uh, obviously she's not a doctor or, you know, someone with magical powers. And um, she, you know, just massages a little bit the hands of the lady with arthritis and she just feels better. So I thought, I thought she's a pretty cool character. Overall, I don't understand some of the humor because I've never been there. So I think it's a bit of the cultural and the lifestyle. And then also in regards to... Also, the question of uh, if I have ever been in a situation where I was stuck, where I didn't want to be in a place, and uh, maybe, you know, I found or gained something better. Uh, I think I felt like that with New Orleans for so long, because I've been here for like 15 years. And however, every 
year I found new things. And I think it was also about being open to immerse myself in the city and getting to know it. But realizing to how each area is different, how the people are different, and really there's room for everybody. Also how Maggie explains that the way she felt by herself that she was the prob probably place was a problem or whatnot. But I think it comes down to how you see things. And Maggie says, you know, I think I'm a um, force of good now. I've, this is who I am and, you know, I'm happy with it. And that's how I feel now. Uh, even after COVID, being in New Orleans, that prior to the pandemic, you know, I wanted to live in New Orleans. I didn't feel like I wanted to be here anymore. Kind of like I saw everything that it was. But now that a lot of things were taken away from us and they're starting to come back. I started to appreciate all of that so much more than I used to. So, uh, yeah, I kind of that I kind of changed for the better. And, uh, you know, I look forward to see more things come back, like having drinks with friends, going to parties, which the last scene of the episode made me miss a lot. You know, having outdoor hangouts with like the community, you know, having drinks, listening to music, which we're starting to see come back now in New Orleans. So I really want to go to all those things full throttle with everybody and uh, obviously with you guys. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's all I have to say for now. Thank you for including me. And uh, I think I have a new TV show now to explore. So I thank you for that. All right. See you guys. All right. That was Andres with his commentary for this episode. Uh, he is the first one to mention that he uh, like couldn't grasp the humor because you culturally it was different from him. I never really thought about that. Like everyone we've shown it to, they were like, yeah, it makes sense to there. Like, you know, even though it's a different state, we understood that, but it would make total sense. Of, like if you're not even close to yeah. being from America, you watch it. You're like, what did he just say? Like, wait, what? Yeah. I think for us, Charles, like we've, I've talked about like, uh, some of the, some of the vibes of Sicily, Alaska being like a small town remind me of like, I think Jay was the first person to point this out to me, but it's like, they're kind of like rednecks, but they're just like up North in Alaska, you know? So I make that <laughs> connection, but, uh, also I was thinking about that as well. Cause Andres brought it up a couple of times, sort of like at the beginning and towards the end of his thoughts. So I recently watched Darren Burroughs. He's the actor who plays Ed. I watched his documentary return to Sicily, which definitely Charles someday we're going to have to cover that, but there are some spoilers. So maybe we'll probably have to wait till like season six or a little further, but anyway, like they talk about making the show. Uh, so they shot the show, you know, this is a story that is set in Alaska, but it was shot in Washington. Uh, you know, Roslyn, Washington is where they shot it. And the writers of the show and like producers were in LA. So there's definitely a disconnect. I can see, like they talk about it on that documentary, how, you know, the writers would write this amazing scripts and the, you know, cast and crew, like they loved it. They would be truthful and faithful to the script, but also like they're up there alone in Rosalind, Washington with like no one else. So they're kind of like their own masters. So whatever they do, like no one from LA is like overseeing, has any oversight. So whatever happens on the day, that's like what they shot. That's what's in the can. <laughs> so there was like a, and that also eventually would lead to some strain and stress between like the two 
units. But um, but maybe that could also explain how like it's kind of hard to grasp like what what region this is from. Like it's comedy from uh, this remote Alaska, but also through the lens of writers in LA performed by people in Washington. It's like kind of disconnected in that way. Yeah, that's a really good way to handle that, man. Andres mentions that he really liked the character of Maggie, how she's able to see things differently. It ultimately comes down to a perspective on how you view yourself and others. It's a very good outlook on life. I've always really appreciated that type of um, glass metaphor of like, you know, if you just tilt it a little bit, shines and creates a whole new dimension with it, with this simple piece of glass. And that's how perspective works. Yeah. I wrote down that Andres, you know, he he noted that Maggie says she's a realist. Uh, Andres says, you know, she she listens to other people. He likes how she listens to other people and she's like down to earth. And I wrote like, you know, she's eager to help people. If she's even if she's not the most qualified person, she wants to be there and like help her friends. So in that way, I think is what Andres is pointing out how like she if anyone comes to to her with the problem, she's going to be like, yeah, I'll I'll do my best. I'll like whatever. I I don't know why it's working, but I'll, I'll help you out. Andres also mentioned the, uh, the mosquitoes, you know, uh, he himself being plagued by mosquitoes, uh, in new Orleans. Now, Charles, I always thought we, you know, us in Louisiana, we would get, we got like so many mosquitoes. I thought that was like a big, that was like a Louisiana thing. And I guess I haven't traveled like I haven't traveled to very many places, but I feel like mosquitoes are just like rampant everywhere. I don't yeah, aren't they like in every single corner of the world except for Antarctica? That yeah, we were looking that up earlier. I think also Iceland is mosquito free, but not just like saying like uh, I not just saying like I I went places and saw mosquitoes. I'm trying to say, like, I I always felt like Louisiana had, like, oh, man, we get mosquitoes really bad. But I think everywhere gets mosquitoes really bad. I, I don't know. At least it, in the it's, country. It's kind of uh, – I, I do agree with what you're saying. Like, it feels that way because we live here. <laughs> but it's also uh, tantamount to that thing where people talk about the traffic. So, yeah. like, everyone <laughs> always says the city they live in has the worst traffic ever. They always <laughs> say that. Like, it doesn't matter. And yeah. Yeah, it's just like a thing because you're experiencing it yourself. You're not living in, like, all the millions of other cities. You only have your own experiences to base things off of. So, on your own personal view, you're like, hey, this is the worst thing ever. It's the worst traffic. These are the worst mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah, that and, like, the worst drivers. Like, I've always... <laughs> I think anywhere I've gone, everyone's like, man, we have the worst drivers here. But it's like other places, like they know how to drive. But when you're there, when you're in the other places, they're like, no, 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 we have the worst drivers. (laughs) (laughs) Can never escape it. (laughs) All right. Well, Andres also answered our question about like, you know, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you felt stuck or trapped, but somehow gained something or learned or, you know, changed for the better? And Andres relates this to moving to New Orleans, like being in New Orleans, I guess. He says he's been there for 15 years or something at this point. And he felt that like, you know, being in a new place, uh, maybe his solution for this was, you know, you have to be, I wrote down, he says, being open and like immersing yourself to the city, finding these new things and realizing that like this place is different. People are different, but at least for New Orleans, and I think also for Sicily, Alaska, 
there's room for everybody, which is like a beautiful thing to realize. Uh, you know, like it may feel strange, but you have to be inclusive with putting yourself out there and also inclusive to the people you meet and making room for for everybody. Yeah, it's definitely like the people that you meet in your own perspective. So like, I think that like every town and city has the potential to have room for everybody. It's just, it's determined by the people that you surround yourself with and the way that your outlook on life is. Uh, like a lot of people will say like, I hate this town that I'm growing up in. I think it's the worst. I think X, Y, Z, whatever. And I'm not trying to downplay the issue and saying like, it's as wonderful as like a, a, a large city or anything like that. But oftentimes like your own negative outlook is what's contributing to what you're seeing. So you're imagining that like a geographic locational change will suddenly change their outlook on life where oftentimes no, that comes from within. Right. And Andres sort of ends his anecdote with, uh, you know, maybe at times he felt like getting away from New Orleans but he also mentioned that now with the pandemic, that things were like being taken away from us. Uh, I guess the things being like, you know, going out for drinks, hanging out with friends, being with uh, those who surround you, having that taken away uh, because of, you know, we have to quarantine, we have to stay uh, socially distant, having those things taken away, he appreciated them so much more. So the, now that they're coming back, uh, we have sort of a message of hope from Andres. Uh, Post-pandemic, uh, everybody go get vaccinated. Uh, hopefully there's, you know, we're seeing the light at the, is, well, that's probably a bad metaphor, light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> we're seeing the other side of the bridge, like we're crossing over into this new post-pandemic world where things are starting to become more um, more open, at least in New Orleans, you know. Ah. Uh. Well, I can't top that, Lee. It's uh, <laughs> going to have to end it right here. <laughs> yeah. Andre says, uh, you know, maybe he's got a new TV show to explore as well. So maybe there's more uh, enjoyment of Northern Exposure in your future, Andres. We'd love to have you back on again. Thank you for coming to my birthday party and uh, agreeing to do this and taking the time out of your schedule to watch this, uh, this episode. And, and give us your thoughts. And also, belated happy birthday. Andres' birthday was shortly after mine. So he's also, you know, we've got these May birthdays going on. Uh, so thanks again, Andres. Uh, we loved hearing from you. And Charles, we're going to be back next week talking about the next episode. It's number 24 in season four. It's called Sleeping with the Enemy. Do you have any predictions? The film already came out at that time, right? I think it must have. This is referencing the title of a film. Yeah, I actually never seen the film, but yeah, it is 1991. So it's kind of a recent uh, callback for a title. Normally, like we get like some classic show tunes that we're like calling back to in the title of the episodes of uh, of this show. Sleeping with the Enemy, 1991. A disambiguation. Oh, okay, apparently there's a novel from 1987. Though I'd have to assume they're... Uh, they're referencing the movie, I guess, right? That seems like it might be more popular. Yeah, it's definitely referencing the movie right there. Ooh, box uh, office, $175 million. Sorry. Yeah, this was this looked huge. I thought this film was successful. It's got a 20% rating. Oh, yeah. It could probably be very successful and, lo- and low rated. Uh, but uh, I, I, I thought it was like a good film. I've never seen it, so I thought it was a good movie. Roger Ebert gives it a review. A slasher movie in disguise, an upmarket version of the old exploitation formula, where the victim can run, but she can't hide. 
Uh, One and a half stars. <laughs> yeah. So low rating, but a very high box office. Yeah, people went and saw that movie, Julia Roberts. Uh, yeah, this is, okay. Anyway, this is not what we're going to be talking about next week. We're talking about the Northern Exposure episode. Uh, I want you to give a prediction. What do you, what do you think? Uh, I think that maybe it involves Maggie and Joel once again. Perhaps one of the two decides to do something unsavory and ruins their trust. Ooh. I'm going to go with that. Okay. All right. Well, we'll discuss this next week. Uh, until then, Charles, thanks for podding. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Andres for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.